Good morning. Please be seated if you're not already heading in that direction. It's a good thing I'm accustomed to walking pilgrimage. It's kind of a walking pilgrimage just to get up here. I think I want to start with a prayer poem by Galway Cannell, who you may have heard of. He's sort of like Vermont's version of Robert Frost, who was a New Hampshireite. He um, is now deceased, but he wrote a poem that's just called Prayer, and it's really short. I'll, I'll recite it for you now. Whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. It's kind of a prayer for serenity. Whatever happens, whatever is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. And that's my prayer this morning as we gather together. And I, coming over here, debated whether I was going to share this story or not, because it's a little bit scandalous. But now that I'm up here and feeling quite omnipotent, I'm going to go ahead <laughs> and share it. Um, this was, gosh, a few years ago now, probably seven or eight years ago, I was invited by a Midwestern university to come and keynote their justice conference. And I do a lot of work in the justice arena. This is not an unusual thing for me to do. Um, so I said, yes, I'm happy to come. Put me down for, I'll be there in eight months or whatever it was going to be. And then about two months later, they circled back to me, the conference organizers, and they said, we're so excited to have you come, Dr. Cleveland, but also this other person, last minute has agreed to come too, and he's great and you're great, so can we have you co-keynote this conference together? And this other person that they were talking about is someone that I have a problem with. <laughs> kind of like in the gospel passage, right? You're, if you have a problem with somebody, you need to go and work it out in private so you don't put them on blast in front of everyone else. Now, this is someone who was no, is known in the justice world, actually has several New York Times bestselling books that are kind of about justice, but they're really about white saviorism disguised as justice. It's a white man. He's very wealthy. He's very important um, and has a lot of influence. And the way that he did justice work is actually quite painful. It's white saviorism. It's, it's a white guy going over to different parts of the world that have been colonized by the US and uh, bringing goodwill and cheer, basically. Um, but the way that he often talked about the people who were on the receiving end of his so-called justice was quite dishonoring. And so as a black woman myself, I had been offended by his work. But when other students at this university, students of color, found that he was going to be co-keynoting, students were emailing me out of the blue, just saying, can you please talk to him and so, he, so that he doesn't do what he always does at universities? Because it's harming us. And we've seen him on YouTube. We've seen, we know what he does. And actually, the way he talks about our home countries, our, you know, there's a lot of international students who are coming to me. So I did what the gospel passage invites us to do. I said, I will confront this man. And so I actually have a discernment team that helps me um, 
helps me make decisions on how I'm going to go about difficult things like this. And so I crafted this email. Um, having spent most of my career in academia, I'm pretty good at the affirmation sandwich email, where it's like you start by saying, here's all the things I appreciate about you. Here's how you're racist. And then you end with appreciation, right? <laughs> so, um, and my team, you know, my discernment team was helping. Um, me make sure, you know, just using I statements and, you know, just trying to use as much nonviolent communication as possible. So I sent him an email just saying, you know, I just, I just want to give you a heads up. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to surprise you, but my, my keynote talk is basically going to be a response to yours. And I want to give you a heads up about that. And here are some of the issues in the white supremacy that I see in your work that concerns me and concerns several other you know, people who are going to be in the audience. And then I sent off the email. The next morning, and I think I put my, my, um, my office phone number, hey, let me know if you want to have a conversation. The next morning, I'm in my office at work, just having office hours, just minding my own business, and my office phone rings. And I answer, and the first thing I hear is, I couldn't have sex with my wife last night because of you. <laughs> this is what happens when you just try to do what Jesus said to do, you know? <laughs> and he went on and on and on, and this, this person identifies as a Jesus follower, and he said, you know what, Christina? I'm getting a vibe from you. I don't know what kind of vibe it is, but it's not Jesus. And he said, I was so, you were so in my head last night when I tried to be intimate with my wife, I essentially had some erectile dysfunction. Um, and it's your fault because you accused me. You accused me of being a white man. You accused me of being rich. I was like, that, those are descriptors. Like, I'm not, those aren't accusations. You are rich and a white man. I was just describing you. Um, but he said, there are only three people in the world that I'm not friends with, and you're one of them. He was upset, and I was, my thought was, who are those other two people? They sound lovely, you know? Um, I'm sure we wouldn't be friends. And I share that because oftentimes, when we confront, particularly if, we, if we're confronting around justice issues, if we're confronting across power lines, right? This guy had so much more power than me. He, both in terms of his societal standing, but also just in terms of his connections, in terms of his influence in this world that, that we both live and work in. And so when I read the, the, the gospel passage from this morning, I wonder, what was Jesus really saying? Because that passage has often been used against people who've been abused. If people speak up and say, this person hurt me, people were like, well, you should have gone in private and talked to them. You didn't do it the Jesus way. And oftentimes it's a, a way to silence the abused. It's a way to silence the people who have been marginalized. It's a way to silence the people who are socioeconomically oppressed in church spaces. It doesn't account for power differences. It assumes that we all are equal and it's totally safe and no one's going to throw all of their junk on you when you speak your truth, honestly and vulnerably and even kindly. So then I have to wonder, what was Jesus trying to say? Because I don't think Jesus intended for this to be used 
as a tool of oppression, which is that's how it's often used, as a tool to silence. And one of the things that I love so much about Jesus is that he was probably a social psychologist. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a social psychologist, but maybe that's part of it. But it's obvious to me, if you really look closely at scripture, that Jesus was quite aware of power dynamics pretty much all the time. So when Jesus is telling, is saying, hey, this is what I'm inviting you into, I think he's often doing what he did. He, he didn't preface it in this particular passage, but often Jesus starts a statement by saying, in the kingdom of God, this is what it's like in the kingdom of heaven, or as the Mujerista theologians, the, the Latine feminist theologians say, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. When, when all is well, when things are as they should be, this is what it would look like. So I wonder if this, this passage is inviting us into addressing power imbalances in our midst so that we can be honest with each other, so that we can say, hey, I'm coming to you as an equal because we've dismantled the power dynamics that, that would exist in this space. And I'm coming to you as an honest sister or brother or sibling. And the reason why I wonder if that's what Jesus is saying is because I worked with one of my colleagues when I was a professor at Duke Divinity, who's a, who's a um, New Testament scholar, to develop what I'm, I've called a canonic hermeneutic. And so I'll, I'll unpack that for you for those of you who haven't been to divinity school and you're probably better off. Um, <laughs> but when we think about Jesus moving through the world, we often use this term kenosis that, that Paul uh, initially used. Um, and the, yeah, it's a Greek word and it means emptying. And so Paul talked about Jesus coming to earth as a member of the Godhead but he emptied himself of his power and his privilege so that he could be on earth as a human being walking amongst us as an equal. And so oftentimes really um, earnest students of mine would say, you know, when I'm, when I'm finally a priest or a pastor and I'm up there having, pa you know, and I'm, in, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be just like Jesus. And I'm like, oh, what's, what's that look like? And they're like, you know, I'm just gonna be humble. Like, what, what specifically do you mean by being humble? You know, just I'm going to be humble. I'm going to treat people well. Okay, but usually that, I mean, that's pretty vague. And usually when we're vague about humility, that's just an opportunity for us to be oppressive because we just think we're out there being humble, but really we haven't thought critically about it. And so they say, well, I want to be just like Jesus. I want to empty myself. And that's a wonderful value and hope and also, just as someone who's pretty much trapped in this three-dimensional world here on Earth, it's hard for me to know exactly what it means to cross metaphysical spaces like Jesus did and empty myself. That's pretty hard to even imagine. So I might want to be humble like Jesus was and empty myself of my power and my privilege and dismantling some of these spaces of injustice but practically speaking, what does that look like? And so what I did was I said, okay, we know that Jesus engaged in kenosis when he came, you know, in the incarnation, when he came to earth. But are there instances of Jesus emptying himself while he's already on earth in a human body amongst other humans? 
because that I can probably start to map out, oh, that's the pathway for me. I don't have to cross any metaphysical planes like Jesus did. I can just look to see how is Jesus aware of the social situation, taking inventory of his own power in that moment, and using it to empty himself to make a more equal, mutual space. And when I, when I started to study scripture with that lens, how is Jesus emptying himself of his power as a human being amongst other human beings? The whole New Testament just blew open for me because it turns out Jesus is pretty much always doing that. And I'm going to give you an example of one passage that I've worked with. So here's the thing about Jesus that I think sometimes is hard for us to remember because especially as we move into the Advent season, we're reminded of like how poor and disenfranchised Jesus was. And certainly Jesus was Jesus identified with some oppressed groups, right? He was a Jewish man under Roman occupation. So that's one example. His family was um, so poor that they didn't have access to a place for him to be born necessarily. Um, Jesus was also, um, Jesus was also someone who, you know, was, um, well, I'll stop there and just move to the next piece. <laughs> um, but so Jesus certainly identified with oppressed groups um, and was relatively socioeconomically oppressed. But on the flip side, he was a man in a culture that really elevated men over women and everyone else. He was also um, a, a free person in a slave society at the time. And so even though, I mean, the fact that his family was just counted in the census, census meant that they were seen as actual human beings because enslaved people weren't. And also his family had a small business. And so he was a business owner and had an occupation that provided for him. And also he was a teacher, even though he wasn't formally trained, he had influence, he had a platform. And so one of the things that's interesting about Jesus is he seems to be aware of this intersectionality. He seems to be aware of the fact that it's complicated when it comes to him. In some ways, he's disenfranchised, particularly relative to the Romans, particularly relative to people who had formal education, but in other ways, he had quite a bit of power. And one of my favorite passages ever since I was a little girl was fun to look at with this lens because there's so much going on that Jesus is inviting us into. So the story I want to share this morning is a really famous story. It's told in all three of the synoptic gospels. And it's the story of the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years and Jairus, the man who had privilege and power. And this is a fascinating story on so many levels. It's the first story that in which Jesus is encountering a person of the privileged elite, of the establishment. Up to this point in Jesus' career, he had only been doing ministry amongst the riffraff in society. So if you're a leper, if you're a beggar, if you're a sex worker, if you're blind, you've probably had some interactions with Jesus up to this point. But this is the very start of his ministry. And so he's surrounded by thousands and thousands of people who are primarily the people who have been disenfranchised by society, have been set aside, and he's doing his ministry. He's healing the oppressed. He's, he's, wor he's working amongst the oppressed 
which is what his heart desired. And yet, we see this interesting new element come into play. We see Jairus come. Now, Jairus has all the privilege in the world. He's, he's a member of the, le the established leadership. He's wealthy. He has a whole bunch of servants who run his home. He has, he has, he's a Roman citizen. He's all these things, yet he has a need. He has a need that all his money in the world can't fix. His child is deathly sick. And if I know anything about privileged people, which I went to Exeter and Dartmouth, so I know lots of privileged people, um, I know that they slash we will go to, we will try every possible avenue to get our way and to fix our problems before we would do something like go to Jesus who at this point was only associated with the riffraff. This was not good for Jairus's PR campaign to go and immerse himself in a community of lepers and beggars and sick people, especially because a lot of Jewish theology at that time suggested that if you're sick or poor, it's because you're a bad person. And so he, it was unclean on so many levels for him to go into that crowd, leave his space of power. I'm sure he already called all the shamans. I'm sure he called all the best doctors, surgeons. He probably called in every favor. But some things even money can't fix. Some pain is just universal. So he goes and he approaches Jesus, an act of humility, probably. And he says, Jesus, please come and heal my child. And Jesus is like, for sure. Like, I love everybody. I'll come and heal, my child, heal your child. So he starts to walk out of the crowd following Jairus. Now up until this point, all eyes are on Jesus and on Jairus. All eyes are on Jesus and Jairus, the most powerful, privileged people in this entire community. And yet something very strange happens. There's a woman who's unnamed. That's how un unimportant she is. She's unnamed. She reaches out to touch Jesus's cloak. And in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, it says the same thing. Jesus felt her touch. Jesus felt the power go out of his body. Jesus knew that she had been healed. She was healed in that moment. She had been sick for 12 years. But Jesus did something really interesting to me as a, as a social psychologist, because he didn't just continue to go help Jairus, which probably would have been good for his ministry, right? Like, if you're thinking about, like, you know, your TikTok platform or whatever, it'd be nice to have some videos showing you healing and working miracles amongst the elite, too, right? This would probably go viral, right? This is, this is a great way for Jesus' fledgling ministry to really start, you know, gaining some ground. So Jesus could have just gone along with Jairus. He knew that woman was healed. Let's keep it moving. There's a lot of people to be healed. But he's, he doesn't do that. He stops and he says, who touched me? Which is a stupid question because he already knew and even the disciples were like, that's a stupid question. Like thousands of people are touching you. This, is, this makes no sense. 
But then this woman was invited forward and Jesus said, well, Jesus didn't say anything at that moment, but in answering that question, who touched me, this woman spoke up and told her story. And I love the way the Gospel of Mark tells it. I like the way Mark tells it, who was Libyan, actually, I think, if you didn't know that. I didn't know Mark was black until more recently, but Mark was black. But he said, she told her truth, her whole truth. She told her truth, her whole truth. So imagine this scenario where all eyes are on Jesus and Jairus, the most important people who all, everyone always thinks, this, if God's going to do anything, it's going to be with these important people. And Jesus says, who touched me? And by simply asking that question, the, the center of what God was doing was transferred to this woman. And everyone was listening to her. And she told her truth, her whole truth. And if you know anything about people who have been silenced for a really long time, they've, they've got some things to say. When I was a professor at Duke, I was friends friendly with the custodial staff at the, at the Divinity School. And their actual title was housekeeper, actually, because Duke's a plantation. Um, and I was friends with all four of them who worked in the Divinity School. They were all African-American. And um, one time I was there late in the evening, and I was talking with one of them. And she said, between the four of us who work here, we have 60-something years of working, cleaning Duke Divinity School. And she says, oh, the stories I could tell. She says, let me tell you one thing. There's not a lot of divinity at Duke Divinity School. <laughs> when you have been silenced, when you have been marginalized, when you've been in the shadows, you see a lot of things. You see a lot of things that the people in power don't see or definitely would not want preached, would not want told. But this woman in the Gospel of Mark told her truth her whole truth. I bet it was not a linear truth. I bet she was talking in circles. I bet it was a passionate truth. I bet it was not a TED talk. I bet she was telling stories about what she has seen and what she has heard. She was probably spraying it and not just saying it. There was probably so much going on as she's telling her truth. And she's probably talking about Jairus and the people that he represents as part of her truth. I've been marginalized. I've been silenced. She probably didn't smell great. She probably didn't look great. She's, she's, historians believe she was probably homeless and had been for up, perhaps up to the whole 12 years. And yet she told her truth, her whole truth. And in that moment, at the risk of alienating and angering Jairus, this important, powerful person, Jesus said, nope, let's stop and let's listen to her truth, her whole truth. And she got to be the center of what Jesus was doing in that moment. And so, of course, she was healed physically, but as a social psychologist, thinking about identity in groups, I think her identity was healed too in that moment. Because for the first time after being on the margins, for years and years and years, she's the center of what's 
of the holiness that's happening in that community. She got to preach because Jesus handed the mic to her at great risk to himself. And I spent years looking for evidence, reading all the historical records of that time. Did Jairus ever step in and say, okay, great, Jesus, I'm glad she's telling her little story, um, and I'm glad she's healed, but let's keep going, because I have a need. And isn't that usually how it works if you have privilege? You can be urgent. The urgent need to be urgent, to prioritize your needs over other people's needs, to say, it's, it's, it, this needs to be about me. I can't, I'm actually annoyed that it's about somebody else right now because I'm so used to it being about me. So therefore, let's get back to making it about me because, hey, I have a need. And it's true, Jairus did have a need, had real pain. Just because you're a white guy doesn't mean you don't have pain. But in that moment, there's no evidence that Jairus spoke up and interjected. He, he did what Jesus was inviting them all into. He heard her truth, her whole truth. And in that scenario, the power dynamic was completely switched. And Jesus is emptying himself and inviting Jairus to empty himself of his power and privilege so there can actually be equality and mutuality in this space where people who normally don't get to tell their story are not only telling their story, but Jesus, the teacher himself, is being taught by it, is listening to it, is receiving it. Imagine the beauty that can happen when we actually look at the existing power differences amongst us and we ask ourselves, where do I have power and privilege that I need to empty? How is Jesus inviting me into that so that we can begin to co-create a world in which it's actually safe for one person to confront another in love and not have to fear blowback, silencing, alienation. And what feels so powerful to me about this story is that Jesus was interested in healing the entire community. He was interested in this woman being healed, both identity and body, but he was also interested in healing Jairus's alienation from this huge life-giving community of people on the margins that he had been separated from because of class, because of theology, because of power. I think Jesus was inviting Jairus into unity, into mutuality, letting him know you actually need to be here too, commuting with these folks, hearing this woman's truth. And what's fascinating about what happens next is it's kind of like Jairus's worst nightmare. Because while this woman is telling her truth, her whole truth, who knows how long that went on, could have been hours, she had a lot to share, Jairus gets word from his servants, from, from his household. See, child's dead. See, you, you put yourself out there, you descended into the fray, you humbled yourself, you asked this like weird teacher as a last resort for help, 
and look what happened. See, isn't this proof that we should hold on to our power? Isn't this proof that, that there isn't enough love for all of us? Isn't this proof that the, rec- that the resurrection isn't real? This is a resource scarcity situation. Look what happened. You were trying to be humble and connected and generous and you didn't get what you wanted. And so when Jairus gets word that his child is now dead, Jesus just looks at him and says, Jairus, just believe. I'm trying to imagine what it's like to be Jairus in that moment. You're heartbroken. You're vulnerable. You're in a community that you're not used to being in. You're being called out by this woman who normally wouldn't even have the right to talk to you. But she's telling her truth, which probably shines some light on your problematic life. But Jesus said, just believe, Jairus. And if you look at the work that womanist theologians have done, black feminist theologians have done, looking at the the reciprocity, the mutuality that we're invited into in the Christian faith, then it's not hard to see that the reason why Jairus was probably still able to believe is because he had just heard this woman's whole truth. Her truth fed him. Her truth healed his faith. He was present to her truth. And when Jesus said, just believe, somehow he was still able to believe, despite the devastation that he was going through. And sure enough, Jesus went and followed him to his home and brought his child back to life, which just goes to show there is enough love for all of us. There is enough power for all of us. There is enough resurrection for all of us. We don't have to hold on to it. We can be generous. We can take risks. We can take inventory of how we have power and privilege in communities, in our faith communities, but also in the broader society, and ask ourselves, how can I be more like Jesus? How can I empty myself? What does that look like? How can I pass the mic to someone who hasn't had access to the mic and support their truth-telling, their preaching? How can I think differently about my finances? How can I think differently about speaking truth to power and having some of those difficult conversations on behalf of the marginalized so that they're the ones who aren't being accused of disrupting people's sexual function? That should have been a conversation from a white man to a white man. How can I empty myself like Jesus emptied himself so that we can live into this kingdom reality where it's so based on mutuality that it's okay to go and say, hey, you wronged me. And that's actually welcomed and encouraged. And there's space created for it. I'm going to stop here and just close with the Canal Galway poem again. Whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that.